good to see everybody here this morning. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark 15, and uh, we'll be looking at verses 40 to 47. If you're using the Bible that's in front of you, you'll find one under the chair in front of you. It'll be page 853. 853. For those of you who have not been with us over the last several weeks or even months, uh, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark. We've been focusing over the last several weeks on the death of Jesus. This morning we come to the burial of Jesus, and then for the next uh, couple of weeks after our missions conference, we'll be considering Jesus' resurrection. So this morning we'll be focusing on the burial of Jesus. So Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 40, and I'll read through to verse 47. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the Mary... And Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we confess that it's a precious thing to be able to read and hear your word. We pray that you'd give us a sense of that now. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us by your spirit to help us to think clearly and faithfully in accordance with what is recorded here. And Father, we pray that not only would we understand intellectually what's taking place, but Father, we pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would be changed and transformed. We thank you, Lord, for the precious truths that are here. Give us grace to see them for your glory. And it's through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to jump right into our passage, and in doing so, I want us to see two uh, major things here, two points from our text, okay? And the first is this, we're going to see the death of Jesus, and then the secondly, we're going to see two responses to the death of Jesus, okay? So just two points this morning, the death of Jesus, and then two responses to the death of Jesus. Now, as we consider the death of Jesus, I want us to just take a moment here and kind of briefly walk through the narrative. You notice there in verse 42, so I'm going to start in verse 42. We'll come back to the women that are spoken of in verses 40 and 41. But in verse 42, you see that Mark records that it was the day of preparation. That is the day before the Sabbath. So as we've been walking through and we've been considering the events that are taking place here, we know that Jesus was crucified on a Friday. The next day was Saturday, the Sabbath, which was the Jewish holy day. So, From verses 37 and 37, we know that when Jesus was crucified on Friday, he died around 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. So 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, Jesus dies. 
And Mark says now in verse 42 that it was evening. That's the word he uses. So it's evening on Friday now. Jesus has died at 3 o'clock. There's not much time before the Sabbath starts on Saturday. And the time of day is particularly important here when you consider Jewish burial practices. In the Old Testament, God had commanded the people of Israel that if a man was executed for a crime that he committed, that he was to be buried on the same day. This practice seemed to be especially important if the day of the person's execution took place on the eve of the Sabbath, which was a holy day. So in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, we read, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. And so this is the the background in terms of how the Jews would have understood the importance of burial related to Jesus' death. That He's died and now the Sabbath is coming. It's a holy day and so his body must be accounted for. So in verse 43 we see that Joseph of Arimathea requests the body of Jesus. In verse 44, you see that Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead. The reason he is surprised is because sometimes those who were crucified hung on the cross up to two to three days before dying. However, given that Jesus was severely sleep-deprived, had been severely beaten, and had endured unusual emotional strain, a quicker death here on Jesus' part is not a surprise. In verse 45, you see that the centurion confirms Jesus' death, and then Pilate grants the body to Joseph. Then in verses 46 and 47, Mark takes the time to record for us what Joseph actually did with the body. He buys a linen shroud, he removes the body from the cross, he wraps Jesus in the cloth, he lays the body in a tomb and rolls a stone over the entrance. Now what we should say right away here is that the Bible presents the gospel to us, the good news of Jesus Christ, as an historical reality. The Bible asserts that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not a myth or a fable, like many of the stories associated with the gods of the Greek pantheon, or like many of the stories associated with the gods of Hinduism. But rather, the gospel is comprised of certain historical events which took place in time and in history. And the Bible suggests that if these historical claims are false, then the gospel is untrue. And the promises of the gospel are null and void. So the veracity, the truthfulness, the usefulness of the gospel, if the gospel has any practicality in our lives, then it's all contingent upon these historical events. And one of these crucial historical events is the death of Jesus. Therefore, it should be no surprise to us that Mark takes some time here in his account to stress that Jesus was actually dead. This is the reason why Mark takes such time to record for us Jesus' burial. You notice here in verse 43, notice the various ways that Mark refers to Jesus' death here in this account of his burial. 
In verse 43, we see that Joseph went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, which obviously indicates that he's died if he's asking for his body. Verse 44 and 45, Pilate is surprised that Jesus is already dead, but he receives confirmation from the centurion that he was dead. That's the word that's used there. In verse 45, we see that Pilate grants Joseph the corpse of Jesus. That word can actually be translated dead body, corpse, or carcass. In verse 46, we see that Jesus, or I'm sorry, Joseph actually handles the body of Jesus. He takes it down from the cross. He wraps it. He lays the body in a tomb. He places a stone over the entrance. And so with the repeated references to Jesus' dead body and Jesus' burial, Mark is stressing that Jesus died. And in addition to these references, Mark confirms Jesus' death by the testimony of three witnesses, right? Pilate, who would have never given the body to Joseph if he didn't believe that Jesus was dead. The centurion, who was um, no novice when it came to crucifixions and knowing when someone was dead or alive. And then Joseph, who actually handled the body of Jesus. Mark wants us to know that Jesus was literally, physically dead. His body was a corpse. It was void of life. And his death was confirmed by multiple witnesses. Now, The historical reality of Jesus' death is significant for a number of reasons. I just want to mention a couple here. One, the Bible's record of the historical reality of Jesus' death stands in contrast to other myths that have arisen to explain away Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me repeat that again. This is one of the reasons why the death of Jesus is significant, because the Bible's record of the historical reality of Jesus' death stands in contrast to other myths that have arisen to explain away Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, since the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, and maybe you've heard this before, there are some who have suggested that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, but rather the crucifixion resulted in Jesus falling into a state of unconsciousness. But after being placed in the cool air of a tomb, he eventually was revived. This is known as the swoon theory. Jesus swooned. He fainted on the cross. But, but all this can really be explained by natural means. There's no, nothing here taking place supernatural. There's no miracle occurring. Jesus swooned. He fainted. But later, he was revived in the coolness of the tomb. Another alternate view is uh, presented to us by Islam. Islam denies that Jesus died on the cross. Islam teaches that God would never allow a true prophet, a holy man, to die in this way and to die for the sins of another. And so Jesus did not die on the cross, but rather God provided some substitute for Jesus, another to die in his place, someone like Simon of Cyrene or perhaps Judas, but it wasn't Jesus. But do you see here that Mark, and if you look at the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Luke, and John, they all record that Jesus was in fact crucified, and his crucifixion resulted in death. 
Furthermore, they make it very clear that he did not simply swoon or faint, but rather he died. His body was a corpse, and they provide eyewitness accounts to confirm his death. Just as an historical note, it's been noted that uh, during the time that Rome ruled, it's estimated that they crucified hundreds of thousands of people, which is hard to believe, but hundreds of thousands of people were crucified under Roman rule. And in the many historical documents that we have from this period, there is not one record of someone surviving a crucifixion. Mark and the rest of the gospel writers would have us to know that the death of Jesus was physical and it was an historical reality. And this has been the testimony of the church, right? It was the confession of the early church. It has been the confession of the church for over 2,000 years. We recited the Apostles' Creed this morning. And it's interesting to note that in the Apostles' Creed, the authors of the Apostles' Creed take time to note that Jesus was not only dead, but he was buried, right? Intentionally stressing the death of Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, but not just crucified, died and was buried. That's the faith that we confess. And so the account here of the historical reality of Jesus Christ stands in contrast to other alternative myths that have arisen around His death. Now, the second reason that this is significant, the death of Jesus, is that the historical reality of Jesus' death was necessary for the accomplishment of our redemption. The historical reality of Jesus' death was necessary for the accomplishment of our redemption. You know, in the beginning, God made it very clear to Adam and Eve that the ultimate penalty for sin was death. So let me just refresh your memory here. Let me read this for you. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the ultimate penalty for sin. Death. But we know from the account in Genesis that death was not God's original intention. We were not originally created to die. Death, in that sense, is unnatural. We were created to live, but sin has resulted in death. And not only for Adam and Eve, but for the entire human race, which they represented. So in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, we read, It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so if Jesus were to save us from our, from our sins, if Jesus was to redeem us, if Jesus was to offer us salvation, then He must suffer the ultimate penalty for sin in our place. He must die. And that's just what we see Him doing at the cross. And this is what the rest of the New Testament writers, this is what they stress over and over and over again regarding the death of Jesus, that this is why it's significant, because Jesus in His death was accomplishing our salvation. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died, and why did He die? For our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures. 
Or Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. He tastes death in our place. He dies in our place. And this is the basis of our salvation and redemption. So the death of Jesus, and the reason it's significant is because it offers a true depiction of what took place as opposed to alternative ideas regarding the death of Jesus and because the death of Jesus was necessary for our redemption. That's our first point. Now, two responses, second point, two responses to the death of Jesus. And there's two responses here in our text that I want us to highlight, the response of the women and the response of Joseph. Let's consider first the response of the women in our passage. In verse 39, we read that Jesus breathes his last, so Jesus dies. And then in verse 40 to 41, Mark informs us that a number of women were present at the cross when Jesus died. He mentions three, actually. Mary Magdalene, and we know from other accounts, Luke chapter 8, verse 2, and Mark 16, 9, we learn that Mary Magdalene had been formerly possessed by demons before she met Jesus, but Jesus had delivered her and set her free from that oppression. Then you notice also that Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, is mentioned there. This Mary is likely the mother of Jesus. If she is not the mother of Jesus, which it's possible she's not, then she is likely Mary, the wife of Clopas, who John records in John 19.25 was at the cross. And then Salome, who was the wife of Zebedee, uh, mother of James and John, and James and John were two of Jesus' disciples, right? So these woman, women were closely associated with Jesus. They'd been closely associated with his ministry and even had uh, others in their family who were disciples and followers of Jesus. Now, it's interesting here is, is we've given this short description of the women here in 40 and 41 and then comes into uh, some of these other verses. Some have, have, have speculated here that, that the way Mark writes this, that perhaps there's a reason to find some fault with these women. Because in verse 40 we read that they were looking on from a distance. Now that's significant because Mark tends to use this language of, of proximity to Jesus to communicate one's relationship to Jesus. Are they close to Jesus or are they far from Jesus? He uses this type of language. We've seen this before in the Gospel of Mark. So it, right before Peter denies Jesus three times, we read in chapter 14, verse 54, that Peter had followed him at a distance. And so this language here kind of reminds us of how Peter had distanced himself from Jesus and subsequently had denied him. And so perhaps Mark's wording here hints at a sense of timidity or fear on the part of these women. But we do have to say they were there. And I believe that's Mark's main point. Notice how Mark describes these women in verse 41. He, he says of these women, they followed him and ministered to him. And in the, in the Gospels, the word follow is synonymous with the idea of discipleship. That word follow is used some 75 times in the Gospels. And to follow is the essence of discipleship. You remember when Jesus first went to the disciples, he said, follow me, right? And I will make you fishers of men. And here we see that these women have been following. They've been disciples. And given that, that these women have been following, given that they are present at the cross, 
we naturally ask the question, well, where are the 12 disciples? Well, besides Peter's embarrassing denials of Jesus, we haven't heard from the 12 disciples or seen them since chapter 14, verse 50, when they all left him and fled. That's what the text says. You know, besides Jesus, the 12 disciples are the main characters in this story. It's with Jesus' authority that the 12 disciples have been preaching and teaching and casting out demons and healing the sick and sitting and learning at Jesus' feet. These are the men that Jesus is going to hand the mission over to. But now, where are they? Mark does not mention them when it comes to the cross. They can't be found. On the other hand, these women who are physically weaker than men, and at this time were culturally less respected than men, they are present at the death of Jesus. And in this case, we see that it's not those who preached, and it's not those who uh, healed, and it's not those who held important positions of leadership who were found faithful, but rather it was those who quietly served behind the scenes who were found faithful in the hour of testing. I believe that's at least in part why Mark takes the effort to mention the women here. Mark, and by extension of Jesus, is honoring the service and the faithfulness of these women. As a church, we believe that the Bible teaches that God has reserved the primary role of leadership and teaching for the church as a whole to men. It's not that women can't teach or can't lead in the church. Women are tremendously gifted in roles of teaching and leadership. But in terms of function, in terms of leading the church as a whole, that that role has been reserved for men. However, that in no way diminishes the importance and value of the many and significant ways that women serve in the life of the church. And let me just say, and we see a text like this, let me just say that although sometimes that service may be quiet or sometimes that service may be unnoticed, we see here and in many other places in Scripture that Jesus treasures the faithful ministry of godly women. And we should take note of that. I also want to say here as well at this point, in our next members meeting, those of us who are members here at Berea, Uh, you'll be asked to provide names of men who you believe are qualified to serve as deacons in our church. And it goes, or we should at least note, that the word deacon actually means servant. And that's what we're looking for, servants. Men who have a servant's heart and are eager to advance the gospel mission of our church by serving this body through the ministries of administration and mercy. And in light of that, we see in a text like this that Jesus greatly values the work of a servant. In some ways, we could say that we are never more like Jesus than when we are serving. I mean, what have we learned from the Gospel of Mark relating to the person of Jesus? In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, which is in some ways the the synopsis text of the whole Gospel, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this sense, Jesus is the ultimate deacon 
He is the ultimate servant. So first we see the response of the women who were faithful. They were servants, humble servants of Jesus, and faithful in the hour of testing at the time of Jesus' death. Secondly, we see the response of Joseph, and let's turn to that now. And what do we know about Joseph? Well, we're told in verse 43 of Mark's gospel here that Joseph was a respected member of the council. And the council here is a reference to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, as we've been studying the gospel of Mark, we've mentioned this before, the Sanhedrin was the leading religious, political, and judicial body in Jewish life. And you remember that it was the Sanhedrin back in chapter 14 who was responsible for the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Now, if the Sanhedrin was responsible for the arrest and trial of Jesus, and Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, then was Joseph present at the night of the trial where Jesus was arrested and ultimately condemned? I would say no. Let me tell you why. Back in chapter 14, verse 64, Mark records that regarding the council, the Sanhedrin who gathered together to put Jesus on trial, Mark records that all condemned him as deserving death. All condemned him as deserving death. But Luke tells us in his gospel, in Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 51, that Joseph of Arimathea did not consent or agree with the Sanhedrin's verdict. So if all the Sanhedrin, right, what Mark says in Mark chapter 14, condemn him as deserving of death, but Joseph does not agree with the verdict of the Sanhedrin, then how do we make sense of this? How do we put these things together? Well, the Sanhedrin was comprised of 70 members. Okay, so it's a large governing body. And it seems that the group that was assembled on the night of Jesus' trial was quickly assembled. They tried to get people together quickly to get this thing done. And therefore, it's not surprising that all of the members were not present. Actually, it only took 23 members to constitute a quorum so that they could do business. So if Jesus, or I'm sorry, if Joseph did not consent, but all who were present that night agreed to put Jesus to death, then Joseph must not have been present and only objected to their decision after the fact. So we know that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was more than likely not present on the night that Jesus was on trial. We also know from Matthew's gospel, Matthew actually identifies Joseph as a disciple of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? A member of the Sanhedrin who's a disciple of Jesus. And John adds that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So Joseph was a closet disciple of Jesus, a respected member of the Sanhedrin who most likely was not present for the trial of Jesus and did not agree with the council's verdict. Now, Joseph's request, that's what we know about Joseph, but Joseph's request here for Jesus' body was significant because it was a fulfillment of, of biblical prophecy. You know, burial was not always granted to those who were crucified. We've been considering the death of Jesus and how they put Jesus to death and how they crucified Him, and it was not as though the Roman soldiers turned nice and became very decent and thoughtful guys after they crucified Jesus. They didn't say, well, you know, now that this guy is dead because we beat him to a pulp and nailed him to a cross, we better make sure he gets a proper burial. 
This was not common practice. Rather, it was common for criminals, even after their death, to be left on the cross for days. They might be eaten by the birds. At some point, they may be taken down and their bodies be thrown into an open grave. And from there, their bodies would be eaten by wild animals and left to decay. But God had different plans for the body of Jesus. And He stated it actually hundreds of years earlier. It's amazing. In Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9, the prophet Isaiah writing hundreds of years earlier wrote, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And both of those prophecies are fulfilled in the death of Jesus because he died between two thieves, right? With wicked men. But it was a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, who took his body and buried it in the tomb. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Joseph's actions here, God had purposed different things for the body of Jesus. And Joseph's actions here were a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. But Joseph's request for Jesus' body was also significant because it was an act of faith and courage. The gospel writers that we've already said tell us that Joseph was a secret believer, a closet Christian. But in verse 43, Mark says that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This was an act of courage and Mark recognizes that it's such because there was a certain amount of risk on the part of Joseph. Presumably, the Sanhedrin, which had just condemned Jesus, would have frowned upon Joseph's actions. I guess it would have been possible for the Sanhedrin to be, bring charges against Joseph himself and even to remove him from his position on the council, given that he sympathized with the man that they had condemned as a blasphemer. And then there was the question, how would Rome would respond Joseph was requesting the body of a man who had been tried, convicted, and executed for high treason. Joseph could have been implicated by association. But here we see that in a moment of courage, Joseph steps out in faith and he takes a risk for Jesus. Now it's interesting to contrast Joseph with another powerful figure in the gospel accounts, and that is Pilate. We read about Pilate not too long ago. Pilate was a man of position. He was the governor of Judea. He was forced to make a decision for Christ. And what decision did he make? To crucify Jesus. And why? Largely out of fear. He feared the crowds. He feared the loss of his political position and power. But on the other hand, you consider Joseph who also was a a man of position, a respected member of the Sanhedrin. And he, like Pilate, knew fear. He knew what it was to fear. He had been drawn to Jesus, and at some level he followed Jesus, but he kept it quiet because he was fearful how his fellow Jews might respond. However, in contrast to Pilate, there was a point when Joseph's faith in Jesus pushed him out of the shadows and provided him with the courage To take a risk for Jesus and publicly identify himself with Jesus. You know, I realize that there may be some Josephs here this morning. 
hidden believers, closet disciples. Maybe you say to yourself, yes, I'm, I'm drawn to Jesus. I even believe who Jesus says He is. But maybe you haven't done anything with that. Perhaps you believe at some intellectual level, yes, I believe these things occurred, but you're still not a Christian because they haven't affected your heart. You haven't embraced them. You haven't followed Jesus in that sense. You haven't yet gone public, publicly identifying yourself with Jesus. I love what Alistair Begg says at this point, speaking about Joseph and the secrecy that he had in regards to his discipleship, and then later how he takes this act of faith. Alistair Begg says, quote, If you are a secret disciple, then either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship, or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. Consider that. At some point, there has to be a decision. If you are a secret disciple, then either your secrecy will destroy your discipleship or your discipleship will destroy your secrecy. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Are you a secret disciple? Are you ready in an act of faith and courage to step out and identify yourself with Jesus? How does the death of Jesus affect you? You know, the death of Jesus, as we've seen in Mark's gospel, all the people are fleeing and that sort of thing. But then when Jesus dies... Something significant happens, right? The the death of Jesus does something in the Roman centurion, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. And it does something in Joseph, who was a secret disciple. But once he witnesses the death of Jesus, he's willing to take a, a step of faith and courage to identify himself with him. Praise God that we have folks this morning who are coming to publicly profess their faith in Jesus. One in this service and one in the next. And how do you publicly profess your faith in Jesus? Maybe you're wondering that. If you're a secret disciple, how how would I publicly profess my faith in Jesus? Well, in the New Testament, it's very clear that if one believes in Jesus and they want to publicly identify themselves with Jesus and with His church, then they should begin with baptism. Baptism is our public profession of faith in Christ. And so as we prepare to go to the waters of baptism here in just a moment, let's rejoice with those who come this morning to confess their faith in Jesus who lived, who died, who was buried, and who was raised for our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the death of Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we have to identify ourselves with him through faith, trusting in him, and then to publicly share that with others through the waters of baptism. Lord, we pray that even as we come to the waters of baptism now, that we would worship you for the great salvation that you've won for us in Christ. And Lord, I pray that for anyone who is here this morning 
who secretly, quietly believes in their heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but is fearful to make that known and to follow in a way that is public. Lord, I pray that you would break those chains of fear, even as you did in Joseph's life. Lord, I pray that each of us would boldly and publicly confess Christ to be Lord and follow with all our hearts. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.